Good morning, everybody. I hope it was a great and quiet week for you. It tends to be the lull before the frenzy of December. I know uh, uh, I'm feeling that. And uh, it was a good and quiet week on Lake Wobegon for, uh, for the Philstons, and uh, I hope it was for you. But we do have a lot coming up, and I do want to underscore something before we get into the message, and that is if you don't have a, a regular way of celebrating Advent as a family, if you don't have a practice of doing family devotions or doing an Advent wreath, an Advent wreath is, is a, a way of doing this. It's, um, it's pretty basic, but it's fun, and if you have young children, they can all have a part and we're going to walk you through how that, uh, how that works next Wednesday. So be a part of that. Come and join us. And even if, even if your kids are grown and gone, come and join. And uh, you can build a wreath this, uh, this coming week on Wednesday. Have dinner together here in this place. And, uh, and then um, you can walk through those steps even if it's just you or, or a friend or, uh, or just as a couple. Well, this morning I want to uh, have uh, us think about a particular question, and the question is, it may seem kind of strange, but I want to ask you, where do you live? Not in the bricks and mortar sense, not in the address, not, uh, not your home, but where are you dwelling? Sometimes I like to think of this as, how or what, what are you marinating in? All right, you know what marination is, so it's kind of like, you know, when, when you're getting ready for for dinner and, and, and you take that chicken or whatever it is and, and, and you place it in something and, and slowly it, it absorbs that, that liquid. What are you absorbing? What are you marinating in? There are only a couple of different options. One is entitlement. We could get up every day and feel entitled to the new day. Or we can see it as a gift. And so, but I think so much of the time we pass by gifts and we pass by the day as a gift. And what we end up by default doing is feeling entitled. Now, there's a way to diagnose whether or not you're feeling entitled. So, for example, if you're on your computer or on your phone and you get the wheel of death, or if, if, uh, if, if maybe that website takes more than a second and a half to load, right? And all of a sudden, there's just this flash of impatience, right? Because we're entitled to instant, right? Instant. We're so uh, marinating in this culture of instant gratification, that's one way of diagnosing. Another way would be if, if, you're, if you're driving down the highway and you go to the passing lane and somebody's driving 64 and a half miles per hour, right? And you're just so angry, right? Just so frustrated that this person would, would have the audacity to drive in the passing lane at the speed limit. I mean, what are these people thinking? What's wrong with them, Right? Maybe that anger wells up in you because you're entitled to that lane, and so am I, right? Or maybe you're just simply bored, right? I mean, you just, all of a sudden, you just feel like you've just got to get up and walk around the house, and you don't know what's going on, and suddenly, or, or maybe you're, wherever it is, maybe uh, in your job, or maybe it's in your marriage, or maybe it's at school, and, and you're, just, you're just bored, you know? You're bored with everybody. You're bored with life. You're bored with the people around you, and, 
A great, uh, great thinker and pastor said that to be bored is to turn down cold whatever life happens to be offering you at the moment. Because we're entitled to be entertained. We're entitled to the scintillating um, uh, effects of entertainment from moment to moment. And if we're not, we're just going to switch that channel, whatever we happen to be doing. Are you entitled? I know, so am I. (laughs) And if you marinate there, then you will not be content. You will not be content. To be entitled is a, a recipe for deep, deep disappointment. And so let's consider this morning, what does it take to be content? What does it take to be content? Paul talks about the secret, discovering the secret of being content. Let's consider from the Word of God, Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 3. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Oh, okay. (laughs) How does that work, right? Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, okay. Right. Thanks, Paul. He continues. And the peace of God. Okay, if you do this, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. May God bless us today through this His holy word. Let us pray. Gracious God, our heavenly Father, bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts that we may receive it, that through our hands and feet we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Not long after uh, I came to Thomasville, there was... The Ice Bucket Challenge. You remember that? The Ice Bucket Challenge? Did anybody do the Ice Bucket Challenge? I did the Ice Bucket Challenge. Uh, And do you remember what that was for? It was for ALS, a disease that often is more known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Lou Gehrig contracted this 
Uh, Lou Gehrig, uh, a great baseball player, uh, famous in his own right. But Lou Gehrig, uh, in the season of his decline, said this, I feel as if I am the most lucky guy on the face of the earth. Does that not blow your mind? How does somebody dealing with such an extremely, painfully, excruciatingly slow departure where you lose your function just bit by bit it slips away here in the midst of that deep, deep difficulty is a man expressing deep, deep gratitude. Gratitude. That's Paul's secret. Gratitude. The secret to contentment is to be, is to live, is to marinate in gratitude. Let's take a look at what it takes to be more grateful. What does it take to become people who are not living entitled, set up for failure, but people who are grateful? First, it's this. We need, we need to replace our transactional uh, mindset or where we think about our faith in terms of a transaction with gratitude. Instead of, grat- instead of, of thinking of, of our faith or of prayer in terms of a transaction, right? I scratch your back, you scratch my back. That's a transaction, right? Fee for service. We need to practice Gratitude. You, you've heard of this expression, a debt of gratitude. It's sort of ironic, right? To be grateful isn't to be in, in debt. It's, it's, it's to recognize that you can't repay it. It's, it's the only proper response to something that's given to you that you can't repay. So a debt of gratitude is a wink. It's a tongue-in-cheek, Right? But so often we think of our faith and we think of human relationships, we think of relationship with God in terms of utility, what we can get, what we can exchange. There's no exchange with God except for our, our sin. I talk about that when we, when we have our, uh, our communion time. There's a magnificent exchange. The only thing God asks of us is our sin. That's what he asks us to bring to him. So there's no exchange. There's no debt of gratitude. There's only this, this, this response of gratitude. Now, what is that about? Let's think about what does it mean then to respond to God and all he's done for us in gratitude. Picture this. Imagine this. Uh, a guy uh, asks a, a girl out, and they're standing under the Eiffel Tower, and he goes down on one knee and he pulls out this little box and there's this shiny little thing inside and he hands it to her and she puts it on her ring finger and she looks deeply into her, his eyes and, he, and she says to him, she says, I'll, I'll pay you back for this. That's not quite it, is it? It'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? I mean, just imagine that. The guy, he's, he's gone down one knee, he's given her the, the ring, and she says, I'll pay you back for this, All right? I'll pay you back. Have you ever had something, you've taken somebody out to lunch, and then um, and, and you've done something nice to them, and then maybe they've, they've sent you some cash in an envelope afterwards? Have I mean, you ever done that? I, I've had that happen to me. It's not pleasant. It's like, what? 
<laughs> I took you out to lunch. Just receive it with what? With gratitude. That's the only proper response. There's no paying back when you give someone a gift. You ruin the gift by trying to make it into a transaction. See, Paul's saying, rejoice. Rejoice. He's reminding them of what God has done. He's reminding them to get in touch with what makes life full. Rejoice. It's, it's a command. It's kind of funny. He's saying, yeah, rejoice, okay? Rejoice. Again, I'll say it, re- rejoice. Verses 3 and verses 10 both are a command, an imperative, not a suggestion. He's saying, this is the only good and proper response to the gift of this new day. It's the only good and proper response to the gift of life. It's the only good and proper response for people who understand that life is indeed a gift. G.K. Chesterton said that gratitude is this. It's happiness doubled by wonder. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. What's gratitude? Happiness doubled by wonder. Where are you living? What are you marinating in? Are you living in happiness doubled by wonder? You know, I I think we live somewhere else sometimes. We, We don't recognize all that we have. We don't recognize all we've done. We make comparisons or we think how fast we could be going if that person would just get out of my way, right? We make comparisons between what we have and what other people have. Superficially, we... We, we think of ourselves in less than terms because we haven't gotten in touch with all that we've been given. A, f- a friend of mine uh, uh, goes behind his kids and just pops them on the head every once in a while. Just pops them in the head. Just kind of a friendly little tap on the head. And when one of them says, well, what's, what's that for? He'll say, I, you were too young to remember. My humor is not quite getting there this morning. All right. He pops them in the head, and they say, what was that for? And he says, you were too young to remember. Okay, so we don't recognize all that people have done for us. Think of a parent and all that a parent does for a child before that child can even begin to appreciate how much has been done, how much has been sacrificed, how much has been poured out. That's you. That's me. We need to be reminded to rejoice. See, Paul is saying rejoice because that's a great place to live. And you have every reason to live there. Every reason to live in contentment when you recognize how much you have to be grateful for. So we have to stop thinking in terms of an exchange. When you go to your knees in prayer, when you think about what you want next, have you recounted what you already have? Not out of a sense of guilt, but so that you can receive fully what he's already given you and the gratitude that should, should well up within you as a result. Do you see? Do you making the connection? See, if, if we're always thinking about the next thing, we're always thinking about what we can get from God, we're thinking in terms of an exchange, a transaction. 
What if, what if the people in your life approached you that way? Would that, how would that feel to you? If, if it were always about getting something more from you rather than simply enjoying you. The way for us to simply enjoy God is to be grateful for all that he's done and to recount it. You know, the, the whole idea in the Old Testament when it says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, you know what that's about? That's just code word for look at what he's done for us already in history. Let's start by recounting what he's already done. That's what it takes to be content. It's to stop thinking in terms of an exchange with God, a transactional God, but just in terms of gratitude. Second is this. Exchange or, or, or trade out your worry for gratitude. Get rid of your worry by replacing it with gratitude. It, Paul, Paul says this as a, as a I, I kind of joked about it when I was reading it. He, he says this as a command. Be anxious for nothing. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, try that. Just go and stop being anxious, right? I've told you before, and I'll say it again. If, if you want to know how to meditate, think about the last time you worried. You know how to meditate, right? Because you know how to worry. It's to ruminate. It's to dwell on something. He's saying, don't dwell on your worries. Dwell on all that you have to be grateful for. It's good for us. It's good for us. Uh, in fact, if you practice gratitude, you'll get better at it. Did you know that? If you practice gratitude, you'll get better at it. It's like a muscle that needs to be developed. I remember a, a, in college, a, one of my professors gave me this, this uh, definition of fitness, physical fitness. I'll never forget. He said, physical fitness. Fitness is, is the ability to meet the daily rigors of life without incurring a debilitating injury. All right, so it, it, it's a baseline. It's to it's to have enough of, of physical ability to deal with your daily life without hurting yourself. Okay, well, so too with gratitude. Gratitude is like a muscle that needs to be worked out. It needs to be practiced every day. You can develop a greater ability. That's why Paul says in verse six, and this is kind of a crazy thing. You've got to untangle this here. Do not be anxious for everything, anything, but in everything by prayer. And supplication, and then he throws in with thanksgiving. This is not incidental. It's all you have with thanksgiving, too. Yeah, throw that in there. Put a little pepper on it. No, this isn't pepper. The whole, the whole thing hinges upon gratitude. When you're full of thanksgiving, you, you can't be thankful. You can't be full of gratitude and be full of fear at the same time. You can't be full of gratitude and anxious at the same time. You can't be full of gratitude and full of worry at the same time. You can't. So the more that you're able to practice, the more that you do practice, the more you're able to be full of gratitude, the less room you have for these things that are just so uncomfortable to dwell on. Verse 8, he says this. Let's read it again. Finally, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, meditate 
on those things. Dwell on those things. These are things for which we can be grateful. Look around your life and pick those things out. When was the last time that you wrote down, made a list of things that you had to be grateful for? I I dare you to do this. I dare you. Today, go get out a slip of paper, even three by five card, and write down, just start writing down all the things that you have to be grateful for. I dare you. And see if you're different at the end of the exercise. I guarantee you, you will be. I heard of a guy. See, see we, don't always, we don't always dwell here, though. We meditate on other things. We worry, right? I heard about this guy named Jack. He was, he was driving down this dark road at night, and um, he got a flat tire, and he saw this cabin, and he started towards that cabin, and he just started thinking, now, why would somebody live in a cabin out here in the middle of the woods? I mean, what kind of person would do that? He must be a recluse. I mean, he's probably somebody that you wouldn't want to meet on a dark alley, and here I am in a dark night, and I have... I've got to go knock on, as he's approaching the door, he's thinking, what kind of an unsavory character must this be? He's, he's probably somebody that nobody wants to be around, and he knocks on the door, and the guy opens the door, and he punches him and runs off, you know? He just decided that that's who he was because he was dwelling on it, and so, see, every joke that I had this morning has completely died, died on the vine. Mark Twain said this, He said, I have lived through some terrible things in my life, some of which have actually come true. (laughs) Oh, you got that one, huh? Thanks. Yeah, you can dwell there, or you can build the muscle of gratitude. You want to be more content and less entitled, worry less, be less anxious? You've got to develop the ability to be grateful. And finally, this gratitude. Gratitude. You got to replace attitude with gratitude. Yeah, I know. I know. I just I couldn't resist. Right? You know what attitude is? Attitude is just attitude. We just call it. We know what it is. Right? We don't even call it a bad attitude. We don't call it a chip on the shoulder. It's like I got some attitude. Right? Replace attitude with gratitude. You got to replace it. You've got to get rid of the bad attitude and replace it with gratitude. How do we do that? Replace it by looking at what is, dwelling on what is and not what could be. That's what what we often do. We're always thinking about what could be instead of recognizing what already is. Why does Paul say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength? You know, I've seen this in almost every, every weight room I've ever been in, right? Uh-huh, yeah. I can do all things through Christ. I have 600-pound bench press. I've never benched 200 pounds, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Come on, if I can just pray hard enough, I can get up, I can do it. No, that's not what he's saying. We, we, we take things out of context, and we have no idea what they mean because we put them on little, little cards or little posters uh, by things that are just absolutely ridiculous and You have to realize that context is king. Context is king. You want to know how to read the Bible? Context is king. What's he saying? Everything that I have to deal with, whether I'm in the height on the mountain or low in the valley, even in the valley of the shadow of death, 
I can face down, I can deal with my circumstances with contentment. If what? If I've learned this secret, to be grateful. I love this Nietzschean phrase. It says, when, when you're fighting the dragon, take care lest you become the dragon. I've seen this almost every day. People are fighting the dragon. They're fighting the dragon. What do I mean? What's an example? Can you think of an example where people are, are upset about something? They're upset with the way of the world is. They're upset with the human nature. And so they tag some, some people group or some party or some issue and they get so upset about it and they begin to ruminate on it and they begin to, uh, they begin to opinionate about it and they're constantly expressing that opinion about it and, and soon and soon and soon they become like the thing they're fighting. They become that horrible, awful, anxious, angry, venomous creature that they're fighting when fighting the dragon. Take care lest you become the dragon. If you spend your time dwelling on that thing that you hate, you will become like it in fighting it. I love this passage from C.S. Lewis. It's, it's this image of heaven and hell. Lewis is, is contrasting heaven and hell and he's painting a picture of it. And he says this, He's talking about one woman who's standing on the edge of heaven. Will she be able to enter? You know, a lot of times you think of, of uh, in terms of, of what you've done, you know, a transactional thing, right? Back to that. And if I, my pile of good deeds is better than my pile of better deeds, then, then, you know, the scales of justice will tip and I'll be able to enter heaven. And that's, of course, not Christianity. That's, that's something else. That's every other religion. But what... What uh, Lewis is painting here is a picture of whether or not somebody has any substance to them. And you can begin to see how the substance of a person, their humanity, begins to drain out as I read. He's talking about this woman, and the question is, is she a grumbler or is she merely a grumble? Has she so declined into her grumbling that she has just ceased to be a person? She's now just a grumble. That's what she once was. That's maybe what she still is, that is a grumbler. If so, she certainly will be cured. But the whole question is whether she is now a grumbler. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one, there, still inside the grumbling, it can be brought to life again. If there's one wee spark under those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They must be swept up. The question comes, but how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? The answer is this. The whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing. But you'll have had experiences. It begins with a grumbling mood and uh, you yourself, you're still distinct from it. You can think about who you are and whether or not you want to be grumbling, perhaps even criticizing yourself. And in that dark hour, 
May that, maybe that mood, you begin to embrace it. Or you can repent of it and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever and forever like a machine. You see, the life can be drained out of you. Or you can stoke the fire of your life through gratitude. It's said that Paul just sort of gushes. He's like a geyser, a geyser of praise. Even though he's somebody who five times received 40 stripes except for one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he suffered a shipwreck. And yet, because of his grateful heart, we're here this morning. Do you think it's because of his duty, because of some transaction he had with God? Do you think it's because he, he figured out that these are the steps or this is the code that he has to follow? That, that the church blossomed? Do you think it was because uh, of, of some sort of secret code of ethics or morals alone that buoyed him in that Philippian prison? I mean, do you think it is because of the minimum requirement or because of the fullness that he has experienced in his attitude that we're here today? What's your attitude like? What's it been like? Do you need to have a little talk with yourself if there's still a self left to talk with? Are you a grumbler that needs to be talked into gratitude? Let's pray together. Holy God, how we thank you that you've shown us and not just told us that it was out of your joy and deep gratitude that you humbled yourself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so, Lord, we give you thanks, and today we pray that you would fan the flame of our thanksgiving, that it may burn brightly for all around us to see. In Jesus' name, amen.